0: Hello, I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch Podcast. Since last Sunday, Cubans have publicly demonstrated against the communist regime that has inflicted tyranny on their homeland for over 60 years. Joining me to discuss the background behind the demonstrations and the prospects for a freer Cuba is John Suarez, the executive director of the Center for a Free Cuba. Uh, John, if you could tell our listeners a little bit about your background and the Center for a Free Cuba.
1: Sure. Uh, The Center for a Free Cuba was founded in 1997, by Cubans and Americans interested in a nonviolent democratic transition to Cuba. Our current uh, chairman is uh, Guillermo Marmol, a Cuban American entrepreneur who uh, has a leading position at Foot Locker. Our, the president of our organization is Ambassador Otto J. Reich, and a former Assistant Secretary of State for Latin America and a former ambassador to Venezuela for the United States. Uh, we have a board that's similarly of uh, Paquito Rivera is also a member of our board, who's a very prominent Cuban artist. We also have a research council with intellectuals of the caliber of Professor Jaime Sushliki, who heads the Cuban uh, in the Cuban Studies Institute, Carlos Aida at Yale, who wrote When Snow Falls in Havana, and is an eminent expert in his own right on, on Cuba. Myself, I've been an activist on human rights issues in Cuba for the last 20 years. Uh, prior to my current position, I worked as a program officer at Freedom House on um, Latin America.
0: Very good. Uh, so help uh, for the, for our listeners who may not be fully versed in the history of the last 60-odd years in Cuba, uh, can you give us like a little to, to help set the stage for what has been going on for the past week? Ah, uh, can you give us like a little pocket history of uh, how the Castro's came to power, how their government operates, and sure, and how their uh, how the regime has fared since Fidel stepped down and then later died. Sure, um,
1: Cuba has been an independent country since nineteen o two. Between nineteen o two and nineteen fifty two, it was largely a democratic country uh, with rising living standards and a vibrant and strong civil society, dozens of newspapers, and in the 1950s, uh, television stations, and obviously they also had a radio and a strong, vibrant uh, press. In uh, March 10th, 1952, there was a coup d'etat by Fulgencio Batista against the democratic order in Cuba, and this opened up a uh, a few years of political turmoil in which Fidel Castro was able to take advantage. He portrayed himself as a Jeffersonian Democrat that would restore Cuban democracy. And with the help of the United States, in March of 1958, the United States placed an arms embargo on Fulgencio Batista. And in December of 1958, the US ambassador to Havana was telling uh, Fulgencio Batista that his position in Cuba was no longer tenable and he would have to leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fidel Castro Batista flees on a plane on December, in the earlier hours of January 1st, 1959, Fidel Castro arrives in Havana on January 7th, 1959, in a march across the island. The U.S. immediately recognizes Fidel Castro's regime. In April 1959, Fidel Castro does a tour of the United States where he meets with Richard Nixon for several hours.
0: Who who was at the time uh, the vice president?
1: The vice president of the United States for Dwight David Eisenhower. Uh, The U.S. position at the time was uh, that Fidel Castro was not a communist and that they had to work with him and that they wanted to have him succeed. And they had a policy of patience and forbearance from January of 1959 through October of 1960. Uh, Fidel Castro, though, had already been someone who was conspiring with the uh, KGB and with the Cuban Communist Party, setting up a shadow government from the beginning of 1959 while having the official public government Mm -hmm. Uh, that he presided over. And as he said that he was in favor of free speech and freedom of association, he sent his goons to threaten owners of uh, press, of uh, newspapers, television stations, and radio stations, not to critique them. Mm. And by the end of 1960, they had seized all the newspapers, all the television stations and radio stations for the revolution and shut them Mm. down. And they have not reopened since then. Mm-hmm. Um, they consolidated the revolution. There were mass executions at the beginning, and you had the establishment of a police state, which has endured until the present. Cubans resisted it, uh, unfortunately, early on, because the U.S. had a pro-Castro policy for the first year. The first conspiracy against Adel Castro was broken up by the, a U.S. ambassador mm-hmm. uh but by nineteen six, 1906, late 1960, after Cuba had openly embraced the Soviet Union in October of 1960, Che Guevara was visiting with Mao and strategizing on how to overthrow other democracies in Latin America. Uh, the United States finally stepped up and viewed uh, the Castro regime as a hostile actor. And in April of 1961, uh, the Bay of Pigs, which was a fiasco Yeah, the, the, att- the,
0: the attempted invasion and the attempt to, to depose the Castro regime.
1: Which was not fully supported. And and part of the problem was that you had a change in administration from the Eisenhower administration to the newly incoming Kennedy administration. And this was happening in the first few months of that. And and as you know, when you have a new Mm -hmm. presidency coming, it takes a while for you to get your sea legs. So they inherited this and it was a fiasco. Mm -hmm. The Kennedy administration, then after that, they were humiliated. They set up Operation Mongoose, headed by Bobby Kennedy backing Cuban exiles to try to uh, frustrate the revolution, to assassinate Fidel Castro. And in 1962, October, we have the Cuban Missile Crisis, where the Cubans had received long-range nuclear weapons from the Soviet Union. And the world comes very close to a nuclear apocalypse. Fidel Castro was disappointed because he actually was pushing for the rockets to be launched. And the Russians were actually caught off guard at his uh, fervent desire to start Mm -hmm. the apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And that was actually what some folks speculate that it wasn't so much Kennedy and Turkey, but the fear of what the Cubans would do with those on their territory that led to the withdrawal of those
0: That got Khrushchev to withdraw the the nuclear weapons. Exactly.
1: Um, So... You had then a this relationship with the soviet union there cuba client state throughout the cold war cuba was a center of subversion in 66 they organized the um, tri-continental where they brought together guerrillas terrorist and communist revolutionary movements from asia africa and latin america to plot the takeover of the world by communists they trained and sponsored terrorists in latin america the middle east and Asia, and they would bring them to Havana. Later on, you'd have Cuban intelligence officers operating in the Middle East in training camps for Arab terrorist groups. Um, The ELN, the FARC that are currently operating in Colombia and destabilizing that country were formed and trained by the Cubans. Obviously, Venezuela, and and the Cubans had a long-term objective of taking Venezuela, of turning the Andes of South America into the Sierra Maestra, the Mountain range where Fidel Castro plotted his mm-hmm. uh, revolution against Batista, mm-hmm. and they've had some success in Venezuela, Nicaragua, with Daniel Ortega and the Sandinistas, who's now back and is consolidating his dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Um, so this regime has been uh, constantly on on the forefront of anti-American activities. Ba- basic,
0: basically, any 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 anti-American mischief in Latin America, there's Cubans behind it.
1: Exactly. And what's interesting is you have folks that, uh, these experts who come out and say that, you know, we need to engage and trade and provide credits to the Castro dictatorship because otherwise they'll get closer to Russia and China. Cuba has been close to Russia and China for decades. They cooled their relations with China because of the Sino-Soviet split in the early 60s. But then when Gorbachev and Perestroika broke out, their relationship with the Soviet Union cooled. And when the Chinese butchered the students in Tiananmen Square, the relationship with China warmed. Fidel Castro went to the uh, to the Great Wall of China, and he embraced uh, Deng Xiaoping and the Communist Party of China. And the communists in China, the communists in the Soviet Union, and, and then later on with Putin, have a very close relationship mm. with Cuba that is
0: strategic. And since you brought up since you brought up trade, I just want to to make sure that. I am correct, and that our listeners are aware. My understanding, so I mean, obviously, all these European, you know, the United States has maintained uh, trade sanctions and travel sanctions of some form or another uh, for decades on on the Cuban regime. Uh, the Europeans and the Canadians have not, uh, and they have pretty widespread. Uh, tourist traffic, my understanding is that the only people who profit from that are the regime, that they have constructed their e- economy in such a way that none of that money that comes in or a trivial amount of that money that comes in is actually benefiting individual Cubans, even individual regime sympathetic Cubans.
1: It's even worse than that. It's not only that the money goes into the regime, but it goes into the most repressive elements of the regime what has happened is the regime has been militarized, the economy has been militarized, and there's a military conglomerate called Gaesa. Coincidentally, a Cuban general, López who is who coincidentally is Raul Castro's former son-in-law, runs it. And that runs about between 60 and 80 percent of the Cuban economy, and that includes all of tourism. Mm-hmm. So when people go to Cuba and stay at fly, take their flight in or take their cruise in, Stay at a hotel there. What they are doing is underwriting and funding the Cuban military that is currently torturing. They're they're putting money straight
0: into the pockets of the secret police.
1: Of the secret police and the military. And a military that is currently torturing, murdering, and raping Venezuelan Hmm. democracy activists, Nicaraguan democracy activists. And since Sunday has been shooting at unarmed Cubans screaming freedom and demanding an end to the dictatorship.
0: So uh, that that brings us nicely to uh, to the latest round of demonstrations that started on Sunday, July 11th. Uh, Correct. What what set this I mean, obviously, you have a people who have been living under tyranny for decades. Uh, what set it off? What uh, you know, the, the initial statement by the Biden administration was that it was like covid. You know, that they want Well,
1: it's a little it's a little more complicated. And I also have to underscore one thing, because what they're saying, what their argument is the usual argument, they want to blame it on the United States and economic sanctions. What you say is true, that there have been economic sanctions on and off for the last uh, 60 years. However, the sanctions have always had exemptions for food and medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, during the Carter administration, they were loosened, including travel. The travel sanctions were lifted under Carter and then reimposed during Reagan. But, and in 2000, uh, President Clinton shook hands with Fidel Castro in New York at the UN. And a short while later, they set up TEFRA, which opened up trade, but cash and carry trade, which Mm -hmm. is different than the European. The Europeans are owed billions of dollars by Havana because the businesses doing business with Cuba provide credit and. Cuba's a deadbeat, whereas the United States, the companies doing business in Cuba, do it on a cash and carry basis because of the embargo. So between the last 20 years, U.S. agriculture has sold and exported to Cuba over $6.6 billion worth of uh, primarily food. And uh, the chicken that Cubans are eating in the island is chicken grown in Arkansas. Hmm. Now, here's I, the I problem, know that. but here's the problem. The, the Americans are selling to the Castro regime the chicken at a dollar a kilo, dollar a kilogram. Mm-hmm. The Castro regime turns around and sells it to the Cubans at seven dollars per kilogram. Now, let me give you some comparison. The average American, when they're going to buy chicken at the supermarket, which there's a markup, is paying about two to three dollars per kilogram.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The average American is probably making I would guess about $40 to $50,000 a year would be a median income.
0: Some like yeah, it's something on that order, yeah.
1: Well, the average Cuban is probably getting about $500, $600 for the year. And they're paying a double the price of what so, an American pays. Yeah, so in pays
0: terms in terms of like the labor hours that go into a to a pound of chicken is astronomically higher.
1: Exactly. And the other part of it is because it, it Cuba has a lot more in common with North Korea than it does with communist China. It has a centralized communist command and control system. So Cubans are not allowed. Cuba prior to Fidel exported food. Just as the Soviet prior to the Soviet Union, Russia was the breadbasket of Europe, and later on they need to be importing grain to not starve from the United States and Europe mm-hmm. and Argentina. And now that they're no longer, they're still a dictatorship and they're not a communist dictatorship. They're exporters, again, of grain. Hmm. Cuba used to be an exporter of of food since Fidel Castro. They've been an importer. Currently, they're importing 80 percent of their food. And it's, but the importation is monopolized by the regime. With the exception, over the last few years, there were, things called people called mules that would travel out of the country and through the black market and the gray market, they would purchase food and medicines and get it back to the Cubans. The communists were upset about this. And over the last two years, have been doing everything to shut that down. They used the pretext of COVID to shut down the places that these uh, people went.
0: So so basically, to the extent that there has been a decline in caloric availability to the Cuban people, it has been because the government has shut down the gray market trade.
1: Yes, it was already bad, but it got worse under this. And they used the justification of COVID for shutting down that travel, but at the same time, kept open travel from Russia and India in other places, it had much higher incidence of COVID mm-hmm. because those tourists were coming to the government hotels. Right. These and, other and, people and, as we,
0: cub- and as we, we described, we're putting money straight into the pockets of the military arms of the regime.
1: Exactly. While these Cubans who are traveling in and out, you know, they don't stay at the government hotels and they're not spending uh, to the degree that the Russian and Indian tourists are. So they weren't, a, mm-hmm. they, they weren't a priority and they're viewed as a threat because they view that some of that money is escaping the military. So they wanted to shut it down, which ended up creating that crisis. And then at the same time with these tourists, the COVID has exploded, which by the way, the regime tries to pretend that at the first year There wasn't a COVID problem in Cuba. Cuba has a track record of previous epidemics of covering them up. They've covered up cholera outbreaks. they covered up dengue outbreaks. Doctors were jailed for pointing out that people were dying of dengue back in the 90s. Uh, Journalists were jailed in 2012 when a cholera outbreak took place. And they succeeded in covering up a Zika outbreak in Cuba when everybody else in the region was being impacted. And two years later, the world found out about it because the tourists who had gone there had contracted Zika. When they did the contract trace tracing? They mm. found that ninety percent of them had come from Cuba, while Cuba mm. claimed that they had it under control because of their superior healthcare system.
0: But it was, but it was entirely fabricated. Exactly. Um. So there's also been coverage of this San Isidro movement. Does that what uh the this art this artists artists movement?
1: Yes. What What happened is that this regime. Um, constantly has been tightening the screws. They they had a pro- they had a crisis when the Soviet Union imploded in, in Eastern Europe, and the Soviet Union imploded in ninety in eighty nine ninety one. Right, and that, and that also set
0: off that also set off the the great famine in North Korea when the subsidies from the USSR stopped.
1: Exactly, and what happened was that the Cubans realized that they would have to be flexible, so they allowed um, some internal private markets to emerge to get some hard currency uh, you know to have a multiplier effect in Cuba so farmers hmm. who weren't allowed to farm were allowed to farm and then once that crisis passed they shut it all down again because they don't want people generating wealth inside the country they want them dependent on the regime. Right. They,
0: they want they they want and they want the money that's coming in to be under regime control
1: exactly. Exactly. But what happened in the early 90s, because of the lack of that Soviet subsidy and, and support from other Eastern Bloc countries, they were forced to allow some limited uh, market reforms. And one of those was that they allowed the artist a little more latitude so they could sell their art overseas and bring back hard currency to the regime. Mm-hmm. And what happened was that they, those artists uh, started getting some of their own ideas. And mind you, between 1959 and In 1989, the arts were shut down. Castro made a speech within the revolution, everything outside the revolution, nothing. And Mm -hmm. there were cases where artists had to uh, come out, like in the times of Joseph Stalin, and confess their guilt for their thought crimes or for their artistic writings that were, uh, you know, contrary to the regime. The regime. They were contrary to the regime. But in the 90s, they allowed more latitude. And what happened was in the, in 2018, 2017, 2018, they decided that that opening needed to be closed, and they came up with a thing called Decree 349. That artists that wanted to do anything before they did it had to get prior approval from the Ministry of Culture.
0: Hmm. And, and so, so any any so the, the the regime would have a veto over anything that was made.
1: Yes, exactly. And this these artists got upset, and they created the San Isidro movement. San Isidro is a very marginal, uh, predominantly Afro-Cuban, poor neighborhood in Havana. And they would gather at the home of uh, Luis Manuel Otero Alcantara, who's a Afro-Cuban artist who lives in San Isidro. And that's how it became known as the San Isidro Movement. Mm-hmm. And they were campaigning against the decree. The decree was passed. Many of them were in and out of prison, beaten up. Um, but they've, they've continued and they have media savvy. And obviously, they're artists with, with talent and they've been mm-hmm. able to come up with strong images and and have an impact both nationally and internationally.
0: And so you have these demonstrations, obviously, repressive communist regimes with uh, extensive secret police apparatus. They tend to respond. We saw it. You've already mentioned Tiananmen Square. Uh, We've seen it in Hong Kong. We've seen it in Venezuela. Uh, What's happening on the ground in Cuba there now?
1: What's happening now is they have their shock troops out. Their videos have now actually emerged where you see them firing on unarmed uh, Cuban demonstrators. Uh, They also have others with baseball bats and two by fours uh, cracking heads. And the estimates are, and again, this is very partial information we're getting because they shut down the Internet, Mm -hmm. which these regimes are want to do when they're in a crisis. Mm -hmm. And um, the latest estimates are that somewhere between 5,000, 6,000 that have been arrested. A couple hundred that are formally, are, are activists that are formally identified. We know people have been killed. Um, only uh, that have been confirmed are a handful, but speculation from activists that I've been speaking to is it probably runs into the hundreds. Mm-hmm. Um, and as long as the Cubans continue to protest, which they've continued to do, uh, they will be murdering them and mm-hmm. beating them down and locking them up in mass. Mm-hmm. That's what's happening right now.
0: Uh so what has been the US the US response um I know there has uh I know many of the uh there there is this faction of the far left we saw last night black lives matter uh, came out and basically said this is all about the embargo lift the embargo DSA democratic socialists of america said something similar um but uh has has the the Biden administration, have they followed that far left tactic or have they tried? To no, be, they have not. They, they, have, they not. have
1: not followed. They have not. They've been very clear. Uh, frankly, I was uh, I was a bit surprised. He was pretty forthright that they're uh, taking that this regime is exploiting the Cubans and and taking their money to enrich themselves. And that was part of Biden's statement. Oh, that's very good. Um, so it, it was very good. And uh I, and I think also Tony and the Secretary of State, spoke Blinken, Blinken, also spoke, very, also spoke uh, very well. And I think that's a good start. However, I believe that there needs, action needs to be taken. And I think that first off, we're, we're talking about uh, an administration that believes in the possibility of multilateral approaches. So I think that they definitely need to be pushing hard at the uh, UN... Uh, Human Rights Council at the United Nations General Assembly at the Organization of American States and the bilateral relations with the European Union. Frankly, the European Union has been rather shameful in their, mm-hmm. uh, in, in their statements on Cuba and, uh, and they have a, uh, a cooperation agreement, and although it hasn't been fully ratified because brave Lithuania has
0: refused a, to a, a country that would know something about repressive communist regimes.
1: Exactly. You have to have an you have to have a
0: consensus.
1: All the member states of the European Union have to sign on to ratify this. But the agreement is operating in a de facto manner, providing millions to the to the dictatorship. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's unacceptable. And the bureaucracy of the EU is referring to the communist dictatorship is a one-party democracy and this has been going on for for a
0: couple of years that that doesn't sound like a thing that actually exists no it doesn't
1: <laughs> it, it's it's a very it's, it's an orwellian I, yeah uh, no that's that's that's
0: straight out of animal farm
1: yeah um and, and and i will cite uh president biden who said the united states calls on the cuban regime to hear their people and serve their needs at this vital moment rather than enriching themselves that is the concluding sentence of his statement, uh, Chairman Menendez, Bob Menendez, of a Democrat of New Jersey. Um, who who he Senate is Cuban American, I believe. Is he, is, he's is Cuban. He, 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 he's yeah. Cuban
0: American. He's a
1: Democrat. He's in leadership, and he's very clear on what's going on, and, and has also spoken out very yeah, he's, strongly. He's
0: been he's, been he's been reasonably, certainly for a Democrat, quite firm on on uh, on Cuba issues for as long as I remember observing.
1: And he's also been very good on Iran. That's why he was at odds with the Obama administration. Mm.
0: Um, so before we go, I have sort of two more uh, questions or things to comment upon. Uh, first thing, uh, you know, we remember a few years ago, there were the mass demonstrations in Venezuela against the Maduro regime uh, that have not proven successful. Um what, if anything, gives you hope that we might look back on these demonstrations in Cuba more favorably as them maybe if even if they don't topple the regime overnight, that we look back and say that you know this wasn't a missed opportunity, this wasn't an international tragedy, uh, but this was the beginning of the end?
1: Well, first, I think that when what happened in Venezuela is that the Cubans were there. And Cuban snipers were, and as I mentioned earlier, Cubans are there engaging in torture and, and going after these Venezuelans. The Venezuelans have had 20 years under Hugo Chavez. Hugo Chavez was democratically elected in 99. Uh, and there was a slow, slow slide into totalitarianism and with Maduro taking over. With, with Cuba, the Cubans that have taken to the street knew what they were getting into. The Venezuelans mm. still had the illusion that there weren't- The Venezuelans still democracy. thought it was
0: still thought they were in a democratic country that they weren't exactly under, they, that there exactly. weren't Cuban secret police, Cuban military going to shoot at them.
1: Exactly, and the Cubans that have stood out today know not only that their Cuban police who will shoot at them, but they also know that their families will be targeted, that their children will be targeted, that if this doesn't succeed their kids will be pariahs, and will not be able to study at university or get a decent job. So this really is an all or nothing, it's ba-
0: it's ba- it's backs against the wall time.
1: It's backs against the wall. They know that what they're facing is uh, torture, prison death. But the thing is that what the conditions this regime have created have been so intolerable, that 10s, if not hundreds of 1000s of Cubans have been willing to face that. And that marks a before and after. Mm-hmm. Now, that this regime has been studying how to frustrate uh, nonviolent democratic transitions after what happened in '89, '90, 90, and '91, they have. There, there were we had in Cuba our versions of elect Volessa or Vaslov Havel. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were murdered. Uh, mm-hmm. osvaldo Payas sardinas who organized a petition drive uh, called the Varela Project in 2002, um, got 25,000 signatures. First, his movement was dis, was uh, dismantled with most of his lieutenants, sentenced between 20 and 25 years in prison, and then he was killed in a, quote-unquote, car accident, uh, July 22nd of 2012, with his movement's youth leader, Harold Sepero. Uh, there was another lady, a lady who could have been a Corazon Aquino. Um, her name was Lara Boyan. She led a movement called the Ladies and Wife. When the Castro regime cracked down on these... Um, human rights defenders with this petition, right, with Mr. Osvaldo Paya, the mothers, sisters, daughters, wives formed a movement called the Ladies in White. Uh, Lara a former school teacher, was the leader and had the presence to actually have been a, a national leader like Osvaldo Paya. Mm-hmm. Uh, they organized sustained protests over years to get their loved ones out. And when she succeeded, because it actually was shaking up the monolithic. Uh, nature of the regime. People were speaking out against the beatings of these women on a regular basis. Mm. They let their husbands go early, many of them into exile, but a dozen were able to remain in Cuba. And then she stated that although her husband was out, that until the laws were changed and the system was changed, they would continue struggling. Mm. Within two months of that statement, she suddenly became ill and died in a militarized hospital under state security control. So those nonviolent actors that we saw in Eastern Europe uh, lead change, are targeted mm-hmm. and murdered in Cuba. Mm-hmm. And so you have now this explosion, which doesn't have a visible leader because they, they would be killed. You, so you, it's yeah,
0: you'd want to be smart and not have one. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So I'm thinking that it, it it does mark a before and after. I think that the response of the international community and the United States will be an important factor in how this turns out. Lamentably, in the past, people have mistaken... In, in the 90s, when the Maraconazo happened, when thousands of people took to the street in Havana, the prevailing opinion in the United States and policy circles was that uh, uh, this professor out of American University, William Leo Grant, said that the Clinton administration was afraid that the Castro regime was going to collapse. And with the Castro regime collapsing, that 3 million Cubans would be heading to the United States. Mm. And so they had to uh, support them, and the Clinton administration had an immigration agreement that legitimized the regime and allowed it to survive. And Mm -hmm. 30 years later, you have millions of Venezuelans and Nicaraguans, and potentially if Peru goes away, it looks like it's going to with this election, Peruvians and perhaps Colombians heading to the United States in much greater numbers than the fear that they had of the Cubans Mm -hmm. in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Um, And frankly, I think that if you want to end Cuban migration to the US, a free Cuba, is more likely. Yeah, to is with is, within, is it without.
0: Point. It's a, it's a sine qua non. You you have to have it. You have to have it if you want to maintain migration stability. Um, and then I guess the final thing is: what if anything? I mean, what can obviously you know the the government has its role, but what if anything is there? Can citizens do? Can our you know what what can we do to show uh, to show support to provide aid and assistance? Uh, well, uh,
1: right now, I think that the, the the problem is that what's happened and why this explosion happened is that the regime shut down the avenues for people to get aid to their counterparts in Cuba. We had, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. somebody at Payac, Cuba to see that, Uh Last year, she got tons of aid donated by Cubans in the community. They got together a freighter. They had it arrive in, in a harbor and a port in Cuba, and it was the regime that shut down that aid from getting to people. Hmm. Um, and they've blocked other avenues where you, their agencies, where they get a cut, but they're not even because they've shut down the travel. They're not allowing people to send food or medicine like they could in the past. So Hmm. what I would argue, what I would recommend for citizens out there is one, call your Congressman, call your state representative, your Senator, let them know that you're in solidarity with the Cuban people and their just demands for a free Cuba Two that. Uh, Negotiating with the dictatorship how to enrich them or provide them with assistance doesn't help the people. That what we need to be getting is a humanitarian corridor where international NGOs and independent Cubans can directly get assistance to Cubans and bypass the Cuban military. Mm. They have a history in the past, including during hurricanes when aid was shipped and having that aid not reach the people, but having it sold.
0: Mm. (laughs) That is, that's, uh, well, it's what I would expect from the Cuban regime. Yep. Uh, well, uh, uh, John Suarez, thank you for joining us. Uh, you can see his work at, uh, for the Center for Free Cuba at cubacenter.org. Uh, that's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review.